turn to the Gospel of John. We are continuing our series, making our way through John's Gospel. We are making our way a little bit slowly due to some travel, but we are making our way, and the goal is to get through all 21 chapters of John's Gospel. My heart as your pastor, my goal as your pastor for however long the Lord has me here, and hopefully it's for many, many years, is to, by God's grace, be able to preach through as I can every book of the Bible so that at some point you would have been through every book of the Bible. I won't tell you when we're going through Leviticus. (laughs) Just have you show up on that Sunday. We'll turn to uh, John chapter 4. We've been through the first three chapters. Jesus has been to a number of places, and we'll review that in just a moment. You know, when I discussed this teaching series with Jeff Percival, I gave Jeff a call and just said, hey, give me some thoughts on preaching through the Gospel of John. I had taken a class by Jeff that he taught at the Pastors College a number of years ago on the Gospels, and we did We spent a whole day on John's gospel, and it was a wonderful introduction, a wonderful insight into the gospel. But he gave me one caution. He gave me, just watch out for this. He said, be careful, because in John's gospel, there are repeated themes. And so every number of chapters, you're going to hit the same theme, and you you can't end up preaching on the same theme over and over again. Um, and because you end up with the same message. And, and I don't want to do that. Uh, but the purpose of John's gospel is stated in John twenty thirty one. That That purpose is that he's written these things that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing, you might find life in his name. That statement in John twenty thirty one is the theme, is the thread. It it permeates every page of John's gospel. All that John writes refers forward to that statement made at the end of his gospel. That by reading this gospel, by understanding, reading the things of Jesus' life, chapter 1, 2, 3, and onward, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, the Savior, the one who takes away our sin, the Lamb of God, that by believing, we might find life in His name. He says in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He says in John, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so by studying John's gospel, by reading John's gospel, we are looking to find life. And we will be coming again and again across themes. As you read through John, you're going to see repeated themes of light and water, spirit Truth, witness, darkness, love, eternal life. You're also going to come across certain words that are that are called triggers by theologians. One that we'll actually see in this passage in a moment. Certain words that are used to convey a a reference, an important event or idea. Some spend some time reading through this gospel. I, I trust that when you show up on Sunday morning, you have spent some time reading through John's gospel. Go, go through it and circle repeated words. Underline them. Repeated ideas and phrases. And not only will you get the big picture, but you will begin to understand John's thinking and begin to see the purpose of Jesus' mission. As I stated in my introductory message from John twenty thirty one, 31, um, and which is reflected on every page, my, my temptation is to think that you're going to grow weary of my repeated references to this passage. I don't want you to do that because salvation is both a one-time event 
but it is a life that we live as well. We experience the life of Christ. And so when we, we talk about in John twenty thirty one finding life in his name, I, I want us to not just think we found eternal life and that's the end goal, but that we find life in his name. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And that means now. It's not just future, it is it is present. Believing in Christ is, is not a stagnant or one-time event, but it's an ongoing lifestyle. And it's something that we are called to cultivate and to nurture and to experience in a deeper way. Remember in Mark 9, 24, when the fathers had a child who was ill and Jesus says, what do you want? And he says, heal my child. And Jesus says, you know, do you believe? And he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. We are all growing in our belief. We are all growing in our faith. And so these Things here in John's gospel are written that you may sink deeper roots into your belief in Christ. So read with me. We're going to read the, 20, the first 26 verses of John's gospel. And I will I just want you to know, I will not tire of reading scripture on Sunday morning, but especially large portions of scripture. And I hope it serves you as we read through this. So, so read along with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, you 
you brought these words to life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And as we study this passage this morning, help us to find the way. Help us to see the truth. Help us to experience life. Father, help each person here to have ears to hear you speak. Because these are your words. Lord, help Help me this morning to explain and to preach this passage in such a manner that this church encounters you for your glory. Amen. In chapter 4, our story continues for John's gospel. Understand that, that it's, John's gospel is not a series of just short stories. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one story that is connected after, page after page as we're reading through each verse, each encounter. Each story is designed to help you see the bigger story from John twenty thirty one. Now, for the title of this message, it's pretty simple. It is Whoever, Water, and Worship. That's the title of the message. Whoever, Water, and Worship. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the rich theological foundations of the Christian faith. They're all revealed in Christ. In chapter 1, we, we read about creation. We read about the incarnation, humanity's sin, redemption, the law, grace. In chapter 2, we, we come across Jesus as he begins his ministry. We encounter him in, in Cana. His, and we see his deity. We see his power. And we see the shadow of the cross as he's traveling from Cana. Now he's moving to Jerusalem to the feast of the Passover where, where all the Jews would go. And then in Jerusalem, we see we discover God's plan of redemption in Christ, the offer of salvation, eternal life, hell, and the promise of the Holy Spirit as he is overturning the tables and the money changers. And he's, he's talking about raising up the body, his body, which is the temple of God. I mean, it's just one after another. We're going through these experiences and, and introducing in this is his relationship and the work of John the Baptist. And so we're moving along. We're moving along. And what we're moving along Along too is the cross. We're moving along to a day where Jesus Christ is crucified. And everything that we are reading is, is preparation for that day. It is preparation for his disciples. It is preparation for the crowds. It is preparation for the Savior. It is preparation for us as we move to that day. And also in chapter 3, we see that he's beginning to have some what are called discourses or conversations with certain individuals. And in chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Jew, a ruler, a man of distinction, a teacher, and a seeker who has a significant conversation with Jesus. So significant that the most famous words in all the Bible are embedded in that conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who should ever believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is about Jesus' life and ministry. He is about finding lost sheep. He's about drawing lost souls from darkness to light, from death to life, from despair to hope. And we see that in the life of Nicodemus. As you read later on in John's Gospel, you see that Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, are the ones who take Jesus' body and bury it. Men who have secretly become believers in Jesus Christ and then become open in taking his body and putting it in the tomb. The whole world is under the reign of sin. And Jesus has come to change that. And that's what John's gospel is about. And John 3.16, as we read what we just read in John 4, John 4 is a commentary on John 3.16. John 4 
explains to us, reveals to us, demonstrates for us John 3.16. Nicodemus has this conversation, but now we find out there's someone else involved, and it's a woman. Here's my point for you today. God's love offers sinners new life if they believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. God, God's love offers sinners new life when they believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Three points from this passage and, and really from John 3.16. The first is whoever. The offer of salvation is to whoever. For God so loved the world. Now, the world is not just the world. It is the world of rebellion. It is the, the world of those who have rejected God, rejected Jesus Christ, which means it's everyone. It's the whole world. And then he goes on to say, whoever believes, and that is the first point, whoever. The offer of salvation is to whoever is to whoever. The offer of God's love is to whoever believes. John, John's 4, like I said, is, is just simply a commentary. It's a story about the woman at the well, and it's a billboard display of God's love for sinners. John 4 and this story of the woman is a billboard display of God's love for sinners. Jesus in verse 1 through 3, Jesus leaves Jerusalem to avoid con controversy. The, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Galilee was where he was earlier, near where the wedding at Cana had taken place. He's going back there. He's trying to avoid controversy. There was plenty of controversy in Jerusalem with the changing, turning over the money ta changers' tables. And so he's leaving and he's heading up to Galilee. He's avoiding controversy. And his path takes him through a, on a journey through a very arid land, a dry land, a hot land. This is the desert area. This is Palestine. And there are, there are two ways we can read in verse 4. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there are, you can take this a number of ways that he had to pass through Samaria simply because the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee was through Samaria. That's the shortest route. And in a dry and arid, hot land, that is the best way to go. But another way I think we can rightly understand and interpret this passage is that when he had to pass through Samaria, like going through Jericho in Luke 19, where Zacchaeus is, he had to pass through because there was a providential appointment waiting for him. Jesus was on his way through Samaria because there was a woman at a well that he would be meeting. Now, understand that typically Jews and Samaria did not, and Samarians did not mix. Samaria was originally where the northern kingdom of Israel was located. In God's judgment against the northern kingdom, which is a wicked kingdom, he allowed them to be captured and exiled by the Assyrians. The same thing eventually happened to the southern kingdom. They too were worshiping other things than God. And so God allowed them to be captured. God allowed them to be exiled. And they were exiled and captured by Babylon. The difference was that the northern kingdom, when they were captured, they assimilated into the Assyrian culture. So they intermarried with the Assyrians. They took some of the Assyrians' pagan worship practices and added them with their Judaism. And so they became to the Jews, the Jews who had gone to Babylon, they never did that. And so when they came back to Jerusalem, their Judaism, in a sense, was pure. And so the Samaritans and the, and the Jews, they were called Samaritans because they became outcasts. They were, they were not true worshipers of God. In fact, so, uh, so much so that because there was this, this outcast and this, 
this disagreement between the two that the, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim rather than go and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jewish, the Jews looked at these outcasts. They were, they were despised. They were racial half-breeds. They were inferior. They were impure. They were idolaters. That's who the Samaritans were to the Jews. And so to go through Samaria was not often the way a Jew would go from Jew, Jerusalem to Galilee. They would go and they would often travel the longer route. Anything that a Jew would touch of a Samaritan would be considered defiling to them. They were unclean. They were despised. And so here we see Jesus is passing through this place where Jews normally do not go. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here is John 1.14 coming to life. The Word has become flesh. He's wearied. He's tired. He's hot. He's thirsty. He's one of us. Jesus is one of us. And he asks for a drink. And John records, in a sense, kind of the, the shock waves that, that happened with this woman as he asked her for a drink. He says to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman, they identify her as a Samaritan woman. John specifically, she's a Samaritan woman. She's not a woman from the town of Sychar. She's not just a woman. She is a Samaritan woman. Said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, she would have recognized him by his dress, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Understand, too, that in, in ancient Israel, Near Eastern times, women were second-class citizens. You, as a man, did not talk to a woman. More importantly, you did not talk to an unclean, socially outcast, half-breed woman. You would not talk to a Samaritan woman. In verse 27, later on, the disciples themselves are shocked. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So there is this shockwave because she is a moral outcast. And what makes her a moral outcast is that she has come to this well at noontime. Now, I know you're familiar with this story, but just, but just insert yourself in again to this story because the woman at the well is you and me. We were all immoral, social Outcasts. We were outcasts from the kingdom of God. This woman, this woman is an outcast. She is not acceptable. When Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, his disciples were most likely listening because Nicodemus came at night. In ancient Israel, they would have understood the whoever of John 3, 316, whoever believes, they would have actually understood that whoever to be a man. They would have understood that, that anyone, whoever, that person to come, they would have understood that to be a man. Especially this man, a Jewish male, morally upright, and Nicodemus fit that bill. The whoever to them would have not been a woman. John intends for us to see the contrast between the woman and, and Nicodemus, this, this outcast. Now, listen, I understand what it means to be an outcast in a small, small way. When I was 13 years old, I, 
I was flying up to New York to visit a friend. I was 13. They put me on this airplane to fly up to Islip, New York, this small airfield in New York. And it was a, I remember it was an old propeller plane and uh, I'm 13 years old and I know nothing and I just sit on the plane and I'm sitting next to a guy in a business suit, you know, white shirt, tie, the whole deal. And uh, the, the, the flight attendant came and uh, back then they called them stewardesses. That's when, that was a long time ago. And the flight attendant came and, and we're, she was giving drinks, and so I got a hot chocolate. That's all I knew to drink there. And, and I'm sitting there, and it's hot. And you know those little air things that come down on an airplane that, that blow air when you get hot? Well, in my 13-year-old brilliant mind, I'm thinking, I know how to cool this down. And so I take my hot chocolate, and I stick it up there with, with the hot air thing. And, and sure enough, my brilliance created this this whole new experience as I'm watching hot chocolate flying over this man's white shirt and suit sitting next to me. And then I'm watching everybody else on the plane looking at me and him. And I, I am a social outcast at that moment. John wants us to see the contrast between this woman and Nicodemus. He is educated. He is powerful. He is respected. He is upright. He's moral. He's theologically trained. He's a pillar of the community. This woman, this Samaritan woman is uneducated, void of social influence, immoral, poor, and basically a pagan. In fact, we don't even, we're not even told her name. We're told Nicodemus's name, but we're not even told her name. That's how much of an outcast she is. There's no way that the whoever in John 3 could refer to a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus gives his time and his grace to her. The whoever in John 3.16 includes her as well. And it is a whoever that included you. John shows us that there are no boundaries to who Jesus reaches. Rich, famous, outcast, young, old, moral, immoral, and the like. The message of the gospel goes out to everyone. For God so loved the world that whoever, and here is the perfect example of whoever. John 3.16, being demonstrated right here, right now. I love what Skip Ryan in his commentary says about Jesus. He says, the nature of grace is that it finds us when we're not looking for it. The nature of grace is that it finds us when we're not looking for it. The woman at the well was not looking for grace. She was looking for water. She had gone to the well at the sixth hour, which was noon, which was the hottest part of the day because she was an immoral woman. She was an outcast. She had had more than five husbands and no other woman in the village of Sychar would go with her. She had to go on her own. She had to lug a heavy water jar on her own. And she encounters the Savior because he had to pass through Samaria. It's not just whoever, but point two is water. John introduces us again to the idea of water. Water that he had talked about in John 2 when he was talking about water and purification. We're getting introduced to that same theme again. The offer of God's love to this woman is in reference to water. It's the offer of new life. He talks about the gift of God. He talks about eternal life. He talks about living water. Jesus answered her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, which is eternal life, and who it is that it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who 
whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is living water being given to whoever. Jesus is working in these verses. Look, if you knew the gift of God, oh, I love it. He's, he's teasing her in a sense. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Now, back in this ancient times, Wells were either made, were stagnant water or springs of water. This, this was a spring. So running water is what she's thinking about. She's thinking about fresh water here, running water here. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug that well, who gave us this well? And drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And of course, yes, he is greater than the father Jacob. Yes, he's the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is the God who has become flesh. Yes, he is greater. And Jesus is, is working to create thirst in here. In this culture, running water was significant because it's an arid, it's a dry land. And Jacob's well is a spring-fed well, and it means something to her. But this woman does not understand the spiritual significance of what's happening. All she's interested in is what Jesus seems to be offering. How can I not have to come to this well again? Bottom line, I don't want to come here in the hottest part of the day. I don't want to have to deal with the reality that I am a social outcast because I am immoral. I don't want to have to lug this water jar, which is heavy, and I have to come from out of town because I'm sure in Sychar there were wells that were in Sychar. And she's saying, yeah, I want what you are offering. I want indoor plumbing. She thinks she needs water. Jesus is helping her to understand what her real need is. She needs living water. She needs the gift of God, which is eternal life. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's what we need. And if, if, as you are sitting here this morning, if you are not somebody who has experienced the gift of God, eternal life, if you have not experienced living water, I want you to know that the offer of living water is made to you today. As you read this passage, God is saying, whoever, is that you? Is that you? Oh, would you respond to God's invitation for living water? She thinks she needs real water, but she needs living water. The living water is the transforming life and the transforming power that God alone gives. That's what she needs. Now, she does not have living water. In fact, she has just the opposite. Her whole life, she's had the very opposite of living water. In this passage, Jesus is most likely referring to Jeremiah 2.13. That's what stands as the background behind this, this experience. Because in, in Jeremiah 2, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. She, like all of us, all sinners, has rejected the springs of God's grace. And instead, she's made her own leaky pots that hold no water, her own cisterns. She's trying to satisfy her, her thirst in her own way. And like Nicodemus, she, who, who's thinking, how do, I, how do I be born again? She's thinking again, where do I get this water? She's thinking naturally. She's not thinking spiritually. And in verse 16, look at verse 16. Jesus goes right to the heart. He says, look, okay, let's, let's go beyond the living water. Let's go right to the heart. Go call your husband and come here. He powerfully reveals her broken cisterns. He reveals 
in her what she has lived for to satisfy her life, which has never satisfied her. Hence, five husbands and now the one she's with is not her husband. She's been looking to be satisfied in all the wrong places. Immoral relationships haven't worked for her. And Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he does convict her. Jesus tells her to go and get what she worships most, what she believes satisfies her most. Go and get and bring what gives you meaning here. Now, the temptation for us is to think that this refers only to unbelievers. That, and that would be, I think, a grave mistake. Living water is something, as believers, we need every day. We need the living water of Christ. Our, our thirst for Christ should be even more thirsty today than it was the day we came to faith in Christ. It's what makes us genuine believers. It's possible to still find our satisfaction in broken cisterns, even as Christians. Career, social status, education, marriage, material possessions, reputation, relationships, things like that, money, it doesn't matter. Those are broken cisterns. And oftentimes we find our satisfaction in those things. When we, Marilyn and I lived here back in the early 80s before we moved to the warm south climate, <laughs> it's always warm. <laughs> the Redskins were were the Joe Gibb era Redskins. They were winning Super Bowls. They were winning division championships. They were at the top of their game. And it was a long, long run. And I can remember if the Redskins lost on a Sunday, they it, was, it wasn't official. Washington didn't make this official. But they called it Blue Monday because the Redskins had lost. That's broken cisterns. That's finding satisfaction in something other than the living water of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so what? that Bryce Harper hit a walk-off home run yesterday against my Atlanta Braves. So what? Do I care? No. <laughs> There's living water in here. <laughs> the Braves are a broken cistern this year. Are there places where you find satisfaction in something other than living water? You'll know by your response to disappointment. You'll know. Lauren's testimony was, was she finding satisfaction in the idea that if I become a mother, that is what is most satisfying? Or was it living for Christ. This woman had broken cisterns. Throughout the Bible, water is a powerful symbol of God's grace, of eternal life, and real satisfaction. Just a few passages that you might want to note down. Isaiah 44 is one that you can, you can go to to see about... I will read it to you. For I am the Lord your God. Oh, sorry, 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Isaiah 55 is another wonderful reference to water. Who has believed what he has heard from us? I'm sorry. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, everyone who thirsts. 
throughout the Bible, though, this water is this wonderful expression of God's grace to us, God's favor to us, the, the living that we have. God's love for us in Christ offers us living water. This woman was offered living water. And Jesus wisely and graciously and kindly showed her that what she was living for was death and not life. Whoever can come and water. And the third one is worship. The offer of God's love is a changed life. As those who believe and now have living water, we are free to worship God rather than worship idols. God's love not only gives us eternal life, but a changed one as well. In verses 16 to 18, Jesus turns the dialogue because she shows that she's failed to grasp the, the, the dimension, the true dimension of her own needs. She's still not quite seeing what her thirst is. And his design is to help her come to terms with the nature of the gift he's offering because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And she's open and he, he deals with her sin in a revolutionary way like never before. She doesn't have to go to a temple to deal with her sin. She doesn't need a priest. He's dealing with it. She's not exactly sure who Jesus is, but she is aware that she's encountering the supernatural. She says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. saying, I have no husband. So he's commending her. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Jesus, Jesus' knowledge of her life proves to her that he is more than just a, a man, more than just a Jew. And then all of a sudden, the conversation shifts a bit. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, it appears she's changing the subject. Some commentators believe that the woman is attempting to distract Jesus because he's been dealing with her sin, and she's embarrassed. But I would agree with D.A. Carson that that's not the case. I think that rather than distraction, what's what's being experienced here is revelation. She's beginning to see her sin. And she's she's moving in the direction of saying to him, although she's understood the the, the nature of her her real need, he's he's helping her to, to have her eyes open. She's beginning to understand that he's getting to her heart, that she does have broken cisterns, that she has found satisfaction in something other than God, and that and that she really worships something other than God. She's beginning to understand that she has broken cisterns. And so she's been talking about, okay. Jews worship here. We we worship here. Where do we worship? If this is true, if I am a sinner, if my cisterns are broken, where do I worship? And here in verse 23, 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Do you remember back in chapter 2? Do you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? And he responds to their, why, what gives you authority to do this? And he says, what? He says, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up. And he's talking about the temple of his body. He is the new place of worship. That's what he's telling her here. Worship is no longer about geography, Jesus tells her. Jesus dismisses Mount Gerizim because it was a man-made place of worship. He also dismisses Jerusalem, which was the place of Jews. And it was the place that God had designated. He even makes that obsolete. 
The temple is now obsolete. Where we worship now is not in a geographical location. It is internal. Worship now is from within. Not where we are, but who we are in Christ. That is where worship begins. D.A. Carson said this, True worshipers cannot be identified by their attachment to a particular shrine, but by their worship of the Father in spirit and truth. The Father, I love this passage in verse 23. How kind of God. He says the hour is coming. What is that hour? That is one of the trigger words. The word hour in John's gospel literally means the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying that hour is coming when the temple and your temple and the Jerusalem temple and all the ways that you used to worship, they're all obsolete. That hour is coming when you will worship me in spirit and truth. You will worship the risen son of God. That is what he is after here. The father is seeking such people to worship him. Look at that in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, those who, who know Christ, those who no longer have broken cisterns, who have living water, those whoever who, who, who believed in Jesus will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not in spirit and in truth, but spirit and truth. It's one, it's a singular reality. It's not two things. In spirit and and truth. God is spirit, which means that God is invisible. He's, he's divine as opposed to, to human. He gives life. He's unknowable. He reveals himself to us, but he is spirit. And it is God who we worship, not in a particular location, but we worship him in spirit. And that word spirit here is small s, not Holy Spirit, but in our spirits that have been renewed, that have been born again, that have, have eternal life, that have living water. It is that whom we worship. And that is what he is telling this woman. God can only be worshipped in spirit and truth. To worship him in spirit and truth means to worship him in a heart that has been wholly changed by God. And only those who are born again can worship God in spirit and truth. Now, we cannot worship what we do not know. To worship in spirit and truth, like I said, is a single reality. True worship is about truth. But never less than that. But it's about truth. We worship what we know. His attributes. His character. He's holy. He's all-powerful. He's ever-present. He's loving. He's faithful. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the mighty God. The everlasting Father. The King of kings. The Ancient of days. The Alpha. The Omega. The beginning and the end. The Lamb of God. The Lion of Judah. He's the living God. That's who we worship. 1995, I took a systematic theology class. It was a three-week class, and I had to go away for it. And I remember the first day we, we just talked about the, we talked about God who is, there's God who is knowable, and there's God who is unknowable. The, the attributes of God that we do not reflect, and there are attributes of God we do reflect. We can love like God loves, but we can't be omnipresent or all-powerful like God is. And so we're, we're going through these attributes of God. And I remember by the end of the first day, we spent an entire day talking about the attributes of God. And I called Marilyn. I just said, I'm just overwhelmed with how big God is. And then the next day, we did it again. And, and, and as we got into it, more and more as the day wore on, I was just becoming so... It, it was like... It, it was an epiphany. It was, I called Marilyn and I said, I think I've been born again again. <laughs> it just felt like that. Because I was knowing God. I was, I was learning about God. Brothers and sisters, that's what worship is. When we sing on Sundays, when we are here on Sundays, and this is what Jesus is teaching this woman, it is about knowing God. God has offered his love to us, to whoever. He has offered his love in living water. 
He has offered His love by changing our lives that we could worship Him and not broken cisterns. Our private devotional worship is crucial to our spiritual life, but there is something of God's undeniable presence when we corporately worship together. It's what Sundays are about. It is the preaching of God's Word, and it is singing the truth about who God is. It is why we make this day our highest priority. It is the day of the week where we are united together to sing and to talk about who God is and to learn that we might know more about who God is. What a testimony to see Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, both sinners, become worshipers of God. That same reality exists here at Grace Church. Men and women from all places and all backgrounds are all forgiven and meet together. It's why we make this day such a high priority. So just a couple of questions in closing. Do you celebrate the unity we enjoy in worship on Sundays? Is there anything that's hindering your unity here? If there is, deal with it. If there's broken relationships, change that. We do not walk around in this church carrying offenses against other people because that is, the, that is the breeding ground for gossip and slander and division. We do not do that here. We deal with that. We keep short accounts. We go when we're offended. If we're here, we hear that we've offended somebody, we go to them. We make it right. What are you thinking when we gather to sing praises of God on Sundays? You know, you can be singing the words, but your heart's not be engaged. Sundays are not a time when we evaluate the singing. It's not a time when we evaluate the message. This is a time when God is evaluating you. Is there something that is distracting? Oh, you can sing the words, but not be worshiping. And only... Immerse yourself in the knowledge of God prior to a Sunday meeting and you will come in with a whole new perspective. And finally, let me ask this. Are there any broken cisterns in your life? Is there something other than God that satisfies you more? Jesus gently went after that Samaritan woman and he wants to go after it in you. He wants you to trade that broken cistern for living water. God is a forgiving and loving God. He, he, he met this woman where she's at and he meets us all where we are at. There is no sin that is greater than God's forgiveness. He is, for God so loved the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us living water, for taking us from the world and allowing us to be the whoever who believes that we might have living water and be worshipers of you. Lord, I, I pray that you would seal this upon the heart of these dear friends this, this morning. May they have a fresh passion, desire to know you and worship you. And may they experience the refreshing of your living water. In Jesus' name, amen.